0: Mostly Books meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week, I'm talking to author, journalist, and broadcaster, Ian Dunt. A vocal presence in the world of political journalism, Ian is the editor of politics.co.uk. He specializes in issues around immigration, civil liberties, democracy, free speech, and social justice, and appears regularly on TV and radio. In May 2017, Ian was part of the team that launched Romaniacs, a podcast about Britain's departure from the EU podcast was renamed as Oh God, What Now? in October this year, as he and the team continue to make astute observations about the political landscape. Ian's first book, Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? was published in 2016, and his latest book, How to Be a Liberal, was published by Canberra Press in September this year. Ian, welcome to Mostly Books Meets.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, man.
0: Uh, I've got a bit of an imposter syndrome going on here. You, not only do you present or you're part of the team that present Oglebot now, you also work on another podcast as well. So I know you're all over this podcast, Lark, and we're quite new to it.
1: No, mate, no, you have no idea. So this week, I had to interview David Dimbleby for The Bunker, the other podcast that we do. And you, can you even imagine like the degree of imposter syndrome I had for that? I was like, so I have to interview David Dimbleby. I was just... <laughs> So believe me, I I properly understand that there's no no basis for that.
0: With all my guests, I'd like to go right back to your childhood. Now, I've read conflicting information about this. I've read some things saying you were born in Guatemala and some people say you were born in the UK. (laughs) Where were you born?
1: So so my mum's Guatemalan and my dad's British and I was born in Winchester. And then we went off to live in Chile when I was a kid and then came back. But that it's kind of just a coincidence, right? It happens to be another Latin American country, but that happens to be with my dad's work and came back. So, yeah, it's not entirely that complicated, but I think the Chile and the Guatemalan bit, gets kind of mixed together.
0: Chile is such a beautiful country. Do you remember much about your time there or were you just really little?
1: Yeah, well, those were all my first memories. And then I went back traveling there a few years back. It is incredibly beautiful. It's such a strange country because it's not really a country. It's like someone took a slice of a continent. And turned it into a state. So it's just, there's everything there. I mean, you know, from basically like Antarctic conditions to the desert, it's all there. And they have this, I don't know if you've been recently, their method of navigating this insanely shaped country is basically these absurdly luxurious coaches. Yeah. Like first class coach travel. And it is one of the most delightful ways to look out the window that you could I mean, you would do it for hours at a time, but even after 12 hours on those coaches, you're just like, I'm very, very comfortable. And the scenery continues to be profoundly interesting to me.
0: Yeah. And they serve your hot food on trays, don't they? It's all terribly civilized.
1: It's beautiful. Like, it really is. As far as holiday locations go, You'd be hard pushed to find a better option than Chile. It genuinely does have everything. I go back to Guatemala a lot and I've been to Argentina, but I mean, Latin America can be quite demanding and there's no two ways about it. Like, especially a country like Guatemala is genuinely very, very dangerous and it's quite easy to find yourself in a very dangerous situation. That's just not the case in Chile. Chile is very secure. It's very safe it's a really advanced latin american country so you can go there even as you know brit who might feel a little bit wary of going to latin america you can go there without with feeling tremendous confidence and the things that you will find there especially if you're into nature are beyond description really
0: i was there in 2014 and i actually made the decision to by a bookshop whilst in Chile. So that means a lot to me. I haven't spent enough time there, though. I need to go back. I think there's a lot to see.
1: It wasn't specifically the Chilean landscape that prompted that, or or was it?
0: It was a random conversation with a couple that I met, and I met them for one evening, and we were on an island called Chiloy off the coast of Chile, and we were getting up to do a a sunrise kayak, and we were doing that thing as you do when you travel over a couple of drinks discussing Mm -hmm. life. And it had been evolving in my mind. And then they told me about a bookshop near where they lived. And I thought, hmm, if it's a thing, I can make it happen. So why not?
1: Oh, that's amazing, then.
0: So were books a big part of your life when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, they were. My mum's an academic. So there was quite a lot of books around on that basis. She's an academic in film. So they're mostly, you know, they're basically most of the books lying around were like, you know, gender critiques of the first Terminator movie. and blah, Which, by the way, is really fucking, oh, sorry, I can't swear. Sorry. It's okay. Ah, can, I, can I swear or I can't swear?
0: Yes, yeah, yeah,
1: fine. Okay, well, I mean, that really is a very ripe way of critiquing the first Terminator film, <laughs> which, which is open to that shit, like in a manner you would not believe from the first second, in fact. But most of the stuff I was reading at that point was comics, so Spanish translation comics, which I still have tucked away in our spare room somewhere. And when I came to England, I very quickly started going into Roald Dahl. So that was the beginning for me, really. But yeah, it was, I mean, my childhood was completely surrounded by books. And in fact, my house now, I'm looking here, the bookshelves long ago have run out of space and so now there's just this growing little mound of books right by our dining room table that I somehow have to deal with in some way so my, the houses that I've lived in have always looked by and large like that which I mean I say knowingly because I've been to your bookshop and your bookshop <laughs> looks like it is the product of someone who would have a very similar looking house
0: uh, yeah it's it's a curse and a blessing I love it but... <laughs> So are you bilingual
1: then? Well, when I came to England, I didn't speak any English at all. And then I learned it off Andy Peters and Philip Schofield on CBBC. And now my Spanish just kind of degenerated. And now what I've got is like a kid's Spanish combined with an awful lot of swear words, which are from my cousins. (laughs) It's just this really awful, violent Spanish that I've got. I can maintain conversations. I can maintain a friendship. The test, I think, and people who are in my situation who've started to lose, well, actually, it's my mother tongue I we'll probably recognize this, is you know how good you are at language by how tired you are when you have to communicate exclusively in that language. If I'm speaking to someone where I can do Spanglish and just dip in and out for the English words when I'm not sure of the Spanish one, I'm all right. But if I have to just do Spanish, I go to bed at like 7 p.m. Because my, my brain is just exhausted from trying to work its way around sentences where you don't know the word or whatever. So on that basis, no, it, my Spanish right now is pretty poor and I've been meaning to fix it for so long and consistently failing to do so.
0: I always think that it's a sign that you're doing okay in a language if you can have a conversation with the taxi driver. That was my benchmark. Cool. The thing is, it will come back to you every time you go back to this countryside, I imagine.
1: Oh, it does. It does. But then it goes away again. This is the, problem. <laughs> this is the fundamental problem. It's-
0: so, you mentioned Roald Dahl. What was your favorite Roald Dahl book? The Twits. And I can't
1: justify that. And I don't necessarily think that it's any better than any of the others. I think mean, probably Matilda is a better book. And arguably SEO Trot, although it's not sort of the most kid friendly and, and it's probably not the most well remembered of his books. And I think, as far as I know, it's his last one, is a better book than that as well. But the Twits just, it might have just hit at the right moment. It's just this insanely vivid collection of slightly horrified images in my head that come from reading that book at, at the right time so it, it, it is the twits even though I think that probably says more about me than it does about his writing skills
0: uh, it's funny there's been a real resurgence in Roald Dahl readership especially in our book oh, really? recently I've only had, I've had the shop for three and a half years and when I first took over, we always had some but they didn't really kind of tick along but in the last year or so people are really coming back to it there's an awful lot of grandparents that are bringing Roald Dahl back to their kids, which I just think is really lovely, because I just think they're brilliant books. Oh, that's interesting. For
1: a start, I didn't know it had gone away, and so I'm really glad that when you presented me with that prospect, I instantly got the reassurance of the fact that it's come back. You know, my main memory of reading that book is is this idea of solidarity. It's really this feeling that he was on your side as a kid. Now you look at like He Man cartoons or Thundercat cartoons, you know, which is the other stuff that I was experiencing at that time. And at the end of each episode, they would usually be a moral instruction to the child, right? Like, so, you know, He-Man would come up and be like, and the message of this is you must always obey your parents. But <laughs> when you read Rodeau, I mean, you didn't get any of that. What you got was just a guy who sort of treated parents and adults as this kind of enemy class <laughs> who you had to sort of hide things from. It just felt like he was on your side. That was the main thing I remember getting from it was that this guy was on my side. And we were sharing this kind of secret that adults weren't really invited into having with us. That's the bit that I got. And I just, I really hope that he maintains his popularity because that seems to me like a a really important thing to give to kids when you're trying to get them into reading.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that coupled with the imagery created by Quentin Blake, which just... I still can't get my head around seeing a Quentin Blake illustration on any other book. <laughs> to me, to me, I'm like, well, that's, that's weird. Cause that's not a Roald Dahl book. Cause they're so intertwined in my mind. I just think they're brilliant.
1: He had weirdly in school, I remember they had a leaflet of how to stay safe on the railways on a train or something. Mm-hmm. And he did the illustrations for that. And one of the illustrations was, it was basically the instruction was don't stick your head out the window when the train is moving. This is the days, right, where you could wind down the window on, you know, like where the door was. Actually, no, you can still do that on trains. I sound like an old man, and there's no reason for me to do that, because actually they still have that on trains. And the illustration that he did was just of a child with his head being ripped off his body by a part in <laughs> telegraph pole, and that shit stayed with me. Every time I'm on a train, when I just look out the window, I cannot get that image out of my mind, and I've never in my life put my head out of a train <laughs> window for that reason it served its purpose it really did yeah i had a friend once in uni who you know we were like older we were like 22 or something and he we're talking about drugs and he just said he'd never tried any drugs at all and this is the kind of guy that you would have expected he would have at least smoked weed or something you'd have had some sort of you know even minor drug experience he Mm -hmm. said he'd never done any drugs and i was like why he said when he was about 13 he won a radio one competition to meet chuck d from public enemy with a bunch of other kids and they put them backstage and after the show, Chuck D walked into the room, and they clearly said to him, oh, it's a bunch of kids. Just go quickly tell them something, and off you go." And apparently, Chuck D just walked up to me and went, "Don't do drugs," and walked away. And he was just <laughs> so in awe of Chuck D that that was it. He just never, ever touched any of them for the rest of his life.
0: Brilliant. We should just get him to walk around all the schools. <laughs> I don't actually. Is just, he's still around. I don't know if he is. God, isn't that? Awesome? Yeah, of
1: course he is. No, no. Did they just released him. Up?
0: Okay. Fast forward to the present day. You live and work in London. You keep yourself busy in a range of different ways. Pretty much everything you do professionally relates to the world of politics. Given the time we're living in, I'm guessing that makes your work life, uh, I guess your life in general, pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it's been a bit depressing, really, for the last four years, just in terms of all the values or ideals that I have ever held have been roundly smashed by governments in this country and many, many others. So it's not the greatest time to be alive in that sense. But I suppose there's more of a sense of um, direction, because you kind of know what you're fighting for, and you know what you're fighting against. And maybe there's that sense that when you're on the losing side, when you're constantly getting sort of smacked around by governments, there is a real sense of there is something important about what is being done by people right now, when they're uncovering information about what the government does, when they're providing some kind of support for the concept that objective truth still has a role in the way in which we talk about politics when you stand up for immigrants and free speech like all of that right now feels like more of a rebel agenda than it has at any other time i think over the course of my life so it's busy and it's depressing but it does have a sense of sort of momentum to it the last few years which i guess makes it easier on a day-to-day basis
0: Mm. and we're recording this on the 13th of november Uh, So It's just been announced that Dominic Cummings will be leaving Downing Street by Christmas. From your tweets this morning, I'm guessing you think that's no bad thing.
1: No, no, that's good. That's good. I mean, he is an absolutely venal, poisonous, toxic element in our politics. And and his departure is a good thing. I don't think, you know, there'll be a bunch of people that are saying, oh, the government's going to soften and Boris Johnson is going to give up on the culture war and he wants to be a one nation liberal again. I I can't see any of that happening. And I don't know who would convince if he really tried to go that way again. And he won't. I mean, ultimately, you know, Brexit's going to happen in a few weeks actual Brexit rather than legal Brexit. And it's going to be a difficult, bureaucratic, pulverizing few months. And in that, he's not going to be able to blame Brexit because that's the thing that he's defined himself by. So he has to blame someone else. And the people he will blame will be Remainers and European bureaucrats and businesses that haven't prepared properly, even though they've been you know, ceaselessly confused by completely contradictory government messaging. So I don't expect that it will improve things massively in that direction. However, you know, this guy was a really poisonous element in politics. And the fact that he is not there is a good thing. So I've had two weeks now of relentless good news, and you know, first of all, Trump going, then the COVID vaccine now coming's going, and it's just my body doesn't know how to deal with. It's been too too many years of really bad news for any liberal-minded person. It's something you're like, well, what is going on? Has someone like hit a switch or something? We've entered into the tolerable version of reality. So I'm trying to deal with that, and the, the method in which I'm dealing with that is just by drinking an awful lot of champagne.
0: Excellent. Hurrah to that. I'll join you. You mentioned Trump. I was going to bring that up as well because how could you have a conversation with somebody who talks about politics without talking about what is going on over in the US at the moment? I mean, I lived in America for four years, so I have a lot of Mm -hmm. good friends who live in and around New York. And it's been really interesting being in touch with them about this whole situation. Just, I mean, what do you think about what's going on? The fact that he has, you know, he's very clearly lost the election and yet he's very clearly refusing to concede. What are your thoughts
1: on that? Uh, at the moment, it seems like people aren't treating it with the severity which it deserves. And I think I'm guilty of that as well because it sort of felt it's partly the relief. You know, I think it's partly to do with the emotional reaction. Just because we had these weeks of build up to the election where. He refused over and over again so that he would commit to a peaceful transfer of power. He was making this case about, you know, the mail-in ballots and fraud. You could clearly see him building the narrative. You know, I mean, one of the things about Trump is it's not hard to figure out what his strategy is. You know? I mean, he basically has the mind of a particularly awful eight-year-old child. And so you just think, well, this is great. We, we know exactly what you're up to here. And that's exactly what he delivered on because he was comprehensively built. And it wasn't a landslide, but it was a comprehensive and a clear-cut victory by Biden. And because of that sort of absurdist, tragicomic theater of Rudy Giuliani next to a crematorium and a sex shop because they found the wrong place on Google to hold their press conference, it sort of felt more like a comedy than a horror movie. But now I think as the days go on, you're slowly reminded of like, we do actually have to take this seriously. Like what he is doing, A, there is no guarantee, you know, that this isn't going to turn into a severe constitutional crisis on its own merits. There's no guarantee that he will go off. I think more likely and probably in the long term or the medium term, certainly more perniciously is just how much mistrust will he put into the American political system? You look, I mean, he got a lot of votes and at the moment, most people in America accept the result, but there's a good, strong chunk of Republican voters who are signing up to his narrative and who therefore do not think that elections are a fair way, a legitimate way anymore of settling political disagreements in the US. And as soon as people think that elections aren't the way to do that, they will start investigating either option. So the relief has slightly blinded us to just how severe the implications of the current moment are. And I do think we have plenty of reasons amid the, the champagne and the celebrations to be actually quite concerned about the way this is going to play out, if not this year, Then over the years to come.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting actually, because as I say, we're recording this on the 13th. This won't come out for another week or two. And so it's going to be quite fascinating when we actually do put out on air to see where things are because things are happening so quickly at the moment and things are changing beyond all recognition all the time. So Mm -hmm. watch the space.
1: This is the dangerous thing to do. Anytime you put a thing in something that's being released later and make a prediction, then you're you're right there to be wrong about stuff. And I'm wrong about things all the time. But my guess is that in two weeks' time, we'll probably still be in a very similar position to the one we're in right now when it, when it comes to Donald Trump.
0: I'll give you a shout if that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's good. I'll, I'll buy you a drink and send it to you through lockdown rules if, if I turn that Thank
0: you. Obviously, you mentioned Brexit as well. And I was going to pick up on that at the time, and then we got distracted by the U.S., it's obviously been coming for a number of years now, but I'm firmly in your camp. I'm very obsessed about the whole situation. I, I can't quite get my head around the fact it's happening so soon. And I think the reason for that is obviously 2020 has just been such a strange year for us all. I mean, this may seem like a very s- silly question for someone like you who's so ingrained in politics, but how, how much of a... Immediate impact does that mean that you think that we or me as an individual working and living in the UK is gonna feel at the point where Brexit hits, first of January. How how immediate do you think that'll be?
1: If you're not exporting, you're not gonna be hit in the first few days. The main problem is basically people that are exporting. And they're used to basically what we've had in Europe is a dream, like a long, long dream that humanity has had, which is a world without borders. Like what if we could just send stuff and people across borders without having any of the bureaucracy that's been there. And Mm -hmm. what we're doing now is we are replacing borders. We're going back to the age of borders. And for goods, that basically means some of the most tedious, bludgeoning bureaucracy that you can imagine. It's, you know, entry and exit customs checks, it's safety and security documentation, it's special border inspection posts for sanitary and phytosanitary products. It, it's just the full phalanx of tediousness that you get when you have trade borders. And that's about to come back, and we're not prepped for it. You know, our entire ecosystem of trade is built around the fact that you do not have that kind of hold up on the border. Wherein is it going to affect people and just in their lives? I mean, the thing is that could actually happen relatively quickly. And it just depends on how severe. Those weights at the border are. The problem with customs, right, is you put a bunch of shipments on a truck, and if one of them has got the wrong customs declarations, then all the other shipments on that truck are also held up. So you very quickly get this kind of bottleneck effect. Now, we're kind of uncertain as to how bad that – I mean, everyone thinks, to a certain extent, this is going to happen. We're not sure quite how bad it's going to be. For a start, no one's ever done anything like this. We're not really sure of the level of business preparedness. We've seen surveys that suggest that at least like a third of businesses who export just aren't ready for this right now. But also COVID's made it more complicated, right? Because in one way, COVID makes it all easier because people are trading less because there's less sort of economic activity going on. So there might not be such a severe bottleneck. But on the other hand, The thing that COVID asks you as a business is to save capital, right? Because you're aware that we're going through tough economic times. But the thing that Brexit asks of you as a business, if you're a trader, is to stockpile. Because you think that there might be a blockage on the border. So you need to make sure you've got everything already uh, with you. Now, those two things... are. They're not exactly mutually incompatible, but they're not very useful for each other. <laughs> um, and, and so on that basis, it's just this kind of chaos agent you introduce into it. And if that gets very severe, then we will you know, start to suffer of not being able to get things from Europe that we're very, very used to being able to have you know, in our supermarkets and other shops. And then if it turns into something that really compounds the pre-existing economic hit, that we're getting from coronavirus, then that effect on our economy will be something that we all feel. But for those first few days, first few weeks, maybe even the first few months, unless you're an exporter-importer, you're not going to be massively hit by this. Consumers, normal people are going to be the ones in the second wave who get the impact of it coming down the line.
0: It's just very strange that at the beginning of this year, it was still a year away, and then somehow COVID's just seemed to make, you know, the rest of 2020 magically pretty much disappear. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about COVID. Obviously, we're living in this strange situation. We are actually recording this during the second lockdown. My business is currently shut, as are other businesses that are deemed non-essential. And therefore, we are basically trying to navigate situations that we haven't really had to deal with, apart from obviously during lockdown 1.0. We found during this time that a lot of people, whoever have turned to books, have had a little bit more time to relax. And when they've not been watching box sets, we're actually reading. Have you found that's the case for you?
1: Okay, no, but this is why. So the first lockdown, we were just about ready to publish uh, How to Be a Liberal. And then it was like, we can't do that. So we had to delay. And the delay meant that I got to go back to just sort of work on it a bit more. And that involved doing another wave of research. I was reading an awful lot of philosophy, an awful lot of history, an awful lot of economics. And I just burned my mind out. And then this lockdown... I'm genuinely struggling with a lot of the books that I'm reading. And I don't know whether it's the ones that I'm picking up just aren't good. I'm not going to mention their titles because I don't want to put anyone off buying them because I know, I know that lots of other people are enjoying these books, but it's just not working for me. So I've just gone into to comics. I always love comics anyway, but I have gone back into comics in a huge way and have been reading exclusively comics really to be honest, not just this lockdown really for the last sort of two months since I finished the book. And I think it's partly just my brain just getting over the severe trauma it went through <laughs> of all that time reading really quite dense material for the book.
0: It must be pretty stressful that, I mean I know you were one of many authors whose books got shifted back, the one thing I would say about you is I think you, you were published on the 17th of September, weren't you?
1: Yes, I think so.
0: Which I think was fortunate, because I think an awful lot of books were published on the 3rd, and I, I felt quite bad for people <laughs> that published on the 3rd, because there was something like 600 books published on that day, which I think is just a lot of noise. <laughs> No. i mean from
1: your perspective it must have been wonderful right it's just you know it's kind of like an overabundance of good or actually was it too much
0: it was do you know worst bookseller in the world i hadn't taken any time off and <laughs> i took that week off
1: oh wow so
0: um that wasn't planned although my team might think otherwise so i ordered all the books and then disappeared to the peak district for a week <laughs> sorry team <laughs> Thank you an amazing job. But no, I mean, it was wonderful to get so many books in because obviously for months we have been sat in a situation where we were just dealing with books that had been around for a while. So getting some new stuff in was always good.
1: Yeah. And it's nice not to be in the situation of like the cinemas or whatever, you know, where they're just dying for lack of product, basically. At least there was an influx of sort of new product coming in to keep people excited about stuff.
0: Yeah. And like I say, we've been finding just a lot of people have been rediscovering books. You mentioned that you've been reading a lot of comics. In the trade, we refer to them as graphic novels.
1: Oh, I hate that phrase. I
0: can't help. I just,
1: you know, and I know that it's useful and I see that it, and I get it and I know why it's a category and I know why people have. I kind of hate it because it's this chip on my shoulder bullshit from when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, like, comics were so desperate for respectability, right? that there would always be these sort of people that would come along and be like, oh, but it's it's not really a comic. It's actually a, a graphic novel, you know? <laughs> and, and you'd be like, no, man, it's a comic. Like, Mouse is a comic. You know what I mean? That's These are comics. That is what they are. And so now, even though I know that that opinion is completely dated, and actually graphic novel is a term, it helps in the book trade. It's just legitimately true for so much of the product comes out that was never a periodical in the first place. It was never actually coming out as a 20-page floppy. But I can't get over it. It's still got to me that berry wearing chin-smoking guy from the 90s Is like, well, I, obviously I don't read comics, but I do read graphic novels.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say, that whole section of the book trade or the literature trade, I think is massively underrated. And I think there's so mm. many great products. Notice I'm not saying graphic novels, I'm just saying products.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to put your – it's a completely legitimate name to use. It's my bullshit, it's not yours. <laughs>
0: But I just think, I do think it is interesting because we see this not so much with adults because adults that read graphic novels know they like, or comics, know they like them. Mm. But especially when kids are discovering them and I do find that a lot of parents can be a little bit snooty about them. And we just try and push them on to to kids as much as possible because I think it just opens up this whole other part of the world to them that that maybe they might not see otherwise.
1: Oh, good on you, man. Yeah, it really is. It's fundamentally different As a medium to the thing that it's put alongside, like the reason that I'm berating myself for only reading comics during the last two months and not reading any books is because it's not, they're not like two different versions of the same thing, that they're a different thing. And they're also a different thing from cinema. And that I think comes down to the idea of the amount of access you get to the internal life of a character. So in a film, you get very little access to the internal life of a character. And in a novel, you're obviously given unlimited access. Mm -hmm. There's something about comics that they're a visual medium, but still have this ability to give you that internal life, to give you that much deeper experience of what someone's going through. And that, when it's done right, like the, the, the worst times is when a comic basically turns into a book with pictures or when it becomes fully cinematic, you know, and you just think, we'll just write the fucking film screenplay. If, if you're ultimately doing this because you want to make a film, then just go and make the film, but don't come make a comic. Where it really gets it right is when it finds this point almost like just underneath the skin where it can give you internality and visual, the momentum of a visual medium. And that that it does is, is not just a variation on what books and films do. It's something that's fundamentally different to what they do and a completely different kind of art appreciation that you can have in your life if this is a kind of art that you like.
0: Yeah, fair point. What was the last one you
1: read? <laughs> okay, so the last one I read was Paying the Land, which is by Joe Sacco. Joe Sacco is a really fascinating figure. He's probably kind of the only person doing this. He's a war correspondent through the medium of comics. His big breakout book, which was published as Floppies originally and then put together as a book, um, is called Palestine, which is this really quite passionate, incredibly vibrant full of detail. Remarkable. It's a completely remarkable work. Paying the Land is his latest. I mean, he wrote Palestine as as a young man and he's now a bit older. I think he's about sort of 69, 70 years old. And I read it because I'm interviewing him for the Thought Bubble comic convention, which is this weekend would have now passed by the time this comes out. And it's this incredibly kind of melancholy, beautiful look where he, he goes up to talk to indigenous tribes really in North Canada. And what he finds is just this constant meditation on the land. Like these are their their entire heritage, their traditions are based on coexisting with the land, you know, through hunting and tracking Mm -hmm. um, and through the manner in which they used to live, you know, in in the the way they made, you know, their tents, their encampments. And now most of their income is coming from fracking, from allowing fracking to take place where the resource of the land is extracted Mm -hmm. And from the, like, Saka is amazing at this. Like, he never once drifts off into philosophy or any kind of heavy handed. He never says the things that he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, through his conversations with these various people, with people, you know, in oil, people from the various sort of political groups, from people who've suffered sort of alcoholism among these communities, is you just get these two really different ideas of the land. One of which is, you know, sort of almost communal ownership, like a kind of Rousseau view of the land. And the other one is, the worst elements of John Locke taken to their extremes of basically the, the land as a form of profit creation and of property and of timing people when they work for their wages and, and this sort of commodification of, of the landscape. And like, and just on that, he does all of that. It's a breeze to read. I mean, the artwork is beautiful to the degree that you will just, it will stop you and it will sit you on your arse while you stare at the elegance of it. But behind it and underneath it, there's this really deep, really sad incredibly elegant process of thought dealing with stuff that most people don't ever go anywhere near
0: so it sounds like it's going to be a pretty interesting interview when you speak to him you've obviously appreciated it quite a lot right?
1: yeah we've actually done the interview i'd love to maintain that mystique we've already <laughs> done like they pre-did all the video interviews and then they're putting subs on them and then they release them at the time that they would have happened if the convention was still happening physically right obviously it's been cancelled this year and it was as this podcast goes on and probably already at various previous words, you'd have come across moments where you're interviewing someone and you're like, I will not reveal the fact that my nerd heart is breaking out of my rib cage with admiration for this human right now. <laughs> so if you watch that video, it's mostly me trying to maintain a, a veneer of professional respectability, when I'm thinking like, oh, I'm talking to a comics deity right now. <laughs> and I, I, I'll try not to make that
0: too clear. See, imposter syndrome. Indeed, yeah. Now, as a bookseller um, and as a book lover, I have a view that everybody has had a book that at some point they've read that has had a major impact on them. It could be professionally, it could be personally. Do you have a book along those lines? And if so, what is it?
1: I do, yeah. Uh, To be honest, I could have picked a lot of books for this one. And I could have picked an awful lot of them. But The one I was thinking about was Levels of Life um, by Julian Barnes, which is
0: a a very
1: odd book. Have, Have you read it?
0: No, I haven't. It's, it's
1: really weird. I mean, he spends, you know, anyone that goes near it, the beginning of it, you're going to think, what am I doing? And more importantly, what is he doing? <laughs> because a lot of the beginning is mostly about the history of hot air ballooning, which I can assure you is a subject about which I do not give a fuck and do not wish to know particularly anything, really. Then he gets to the, the sort of final third of the book and you get to what he wants to talk about. And what he wants to talk about is the death of his wife. And as that plays out, you do get what the point was of the first two-thirds of the book. It's very, very short, by the way. I I think it's probably about 110, 120 pages. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What he writes about his wife, I just think is some of the finest prose I've read in the English language by anyone living or dead. I've never seen something where someone on sentence after sentence with such precision says what it is that they're trying to say, but also talks about something that we really struggle to articulate, which is essentially loss. You know, what it is to experience loss, especially of the magnitude that he is going through. And to try and create something meaningful, but also something moral out of reflecting on that loss. I mean, anytime I'm around anyone, you know, who's just lost someone, it's the book that I give them. But honestly, I I don't think you need to be grieving or going through anything to go for that book. It has so much to offer and quite apart from even the content, it's also this quite English approach to something. It's sort of, it is poetic, but it's extremely precise and extremely grounded. And also, by the way, full of anger, like full of just absolute undiluted rage at the fact that his wife has died, at the universe, rage at the universe, and also towards several people around him. You know, there's one moment where he's sat with friends some dinner and He mentions his wife's name, and you know that kind of classic social embarrassment when anyone's talking about loss, but they try to get away from it. And he does it again, and they do it again, and he does it again, and they do it again. And he just says they denied her thrice. You know, he just has this this absolute anger at the universe, at his friends, but at the heart of it, it's a properly moral work of someone trying to find some sort of sense of meaning, and and in truth, trying to find a reason to keep on living. You know it's just one of those things if you say like what would you give to other people you just think ultimately with this book I cannot think of a more beautiful piece of writing that I've come across in my life than the final third of that book and for that reason it has to be Levels of Life.
0: That's fantastic. I haven't like I said, I haven't read it. I have I've read one of his books, The Noise of Time, mm-hmm. which is also absolutely spectacular. His writing style is is brilliant and like you say it just it pulls you right in, doesn't it? So I'm going to have to add that to my list.
1: No, oh, sorry, that's the last thing we need right now. Well, it's lockdown. You've got the time. Why not?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm just kicking back, not doing much. <laughs> Talking about books, we really should probably talk about your book. Oh, good. I've got a copy of it here, even though you can't see it because we're recording this on an audio. <laughs> but I promise I have. Uh, <laughs> it has been by Ian. Done. Um, published, as we said, on the on the seventeenth of September. I've read it, and I would say that it's basically a full, in-depth historical view and bringing up to the present day of liberalism and and how it has evolved. What can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it is what you said. It is, you know, it it is a it is the history of liberal ideas and how they and how they got worked through. But what I'm trying to talk about is that what's happening to us right now isn't. Um, it's not just a series of accidents and coincidences. What we are experiencing is an ideological assault. And it's an ideological assault on the foundations of what liberalism is, which is essentially a commitment to reason and objective truth in the way you talk about politics. A commitment to the freedom of the individual is the basic moral unit of politics. And also other ideas like moderation, the fact that conflict in humanity will never go away. like it can't, There will be no happy endings. There will always be conflict and therefore you need moderation in your political systems and your dialogues in order to try and just sort of get rid of some of the sharpness of the edges of, of how that proceeds. Liberalism has been the greatest force for the freedom of people, of the most marginalized, of the most vulnerable throughout the last 400 years. And the moment that it's under threat, Unlike the way that people, what they try to suggest to you, that it's only the elites that believe in this stuff, it's actually the marginalized and the vulnerable who are targeted first. And specifically in our period, it's immigrants. You know, it's never financial, no matter how much they talk about the elite, while they go up in their golden escalators and their golden lifts, it's never the financial directors that get put in immigration detention centers, right? It's never, you know, ministers that get put there. It's the poorest people in the world, children separated from their parents or bungled into vans by immigration guards. These are the guys that are targeted. And on that is to remember like the fundamental radicalism of liberalism, to stop people associating it with really quite comatose, automatic politicians, and to recognize that this thing was invented to eradicate tyrants. And that is still the mechanism that it has inside it. So really the purpose was, yes, you tell the story. Yes, you try to show what those ideas are and do it in simple language. But it's really to remind people, this thing will slice the heart out of tyranny. And it's the stuff that you go back to when you're faced with precisely those same problems in the present.
0: Yeah, it was pretty shocking. The chapters towards the end of the book, which obviously is you you deal with things chronologically. So as you get towards the end, you're obviously closer to present day. And so all these things we know have happened but when you see them all together so much happened in in such a short space of time where so many people mistreated and and the impact was so devastating it was a bit of a reality check again reading it it's not like you forget about it but this really just draws your attention to it yeah i think it's brilliantly written and i think it does a great job of doing what it's supposed to be doing oh thanks mate i appreciate it how did it come about what made you decide to write the book
1: so my, i mean ultimately the last few books have been written for the same reason, which is that my publisher called me up and just said the title and it just sort of slotted into place. Usually I really need that. Like I I find like I have these long periods of there's all this bubbling stuff that you want to talk about. And then I need someone to say a particular sentence that just makes all the blocks slot and you can see a clear pathway to where you're trying to go. And that's what happened here. With this, I kept on feeling that there's two mistakes that people with my values were making and like th- definitely the post-Brexit period, post-Trump period, we've sort of suddenly felt that sense of affinity with people with our values in a way that we didn't before because we sort of thought, well, we don't really need to do anything about them. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, the, the, the world naturally drifts towards more reason and more freedom. And then suddenly you're presented with these moments and you're like, well, no, it doesn't. I mean, history goes backwards as well as forwards. You, you cannot just rest on your ass and think that the direction of travel is always towards justice because it isn't. So suddenly you got a bunch of people feeling alienated and feeling alone and feeling like the world had gone mad around them. And I said, what are the mistakes that we're making? And it felt to me like the mistakes were twofold. First one was a failure of humility. And the second one was a failure of confidence. And like on a failure of humility, it was, we were not looking deeply enough into these areas that liberalism had gone wrong. Like a lot of this book, probably a surprising amount is spent looking at where it messed up. And it messed up badly, especially on economics and especially on the manner in which it talked about identity, particularly for marginalized people, particularly for people who are really getting the hard end of things over the last 40, 50 years, especially. And at the same time, there was also a lack of confidence, which is to say, well, despite these errors, that the heart of this thing, the core mechanics of it, the the genes, the DNA of it is still the solution to creating human freedom. In this world. And that lack of, of trying to see where you're going wrong, the humility for it, but also the confidence to commit to the parts that work and that can change the world for the better. It seemed like that, that's the bit that you you really wanted to talk about. And that was kind of the motor, the engine that kept me going through those two really quite long, hardworking years <laughs> of reading endless philosophy tracks and history books and all of that in the dead of night, which was, I have to say, rather demanding.
0: I was going to ask you how long it had taken and also how you managed to fit it in because it's not like you're sat around doing nothing you're a very busy man how did you manage to do that
1: evenings and weekends it's as simple as that really it's basically just you've got five i mean okay i don't have kids so (laughs) i should add that makes it much easier right and i know if you do then this is the time that gets taken up i don't and so you've got from five to ten each weekday it should be able to be your time as long as you wake up early enough and and do your sort of day job as a journalist, like sort of, you know, diligently enough for that time. And then you've got the weekends. As long as you're sort of getting up at 8 o'clock and then finishing off at sort of 5.30, then you can get it done. But what it does entail is two years of of never having any time off. Mm-hmm. And that is suboptimal, but it is doable. You know, you can wrap it around your your job as long, as long as you make sure you're doing those extra hours.
0: Yeah, a previous person I interviewed on the podcast said to me that, when he was toying with the idea of, of writing a book, somebody had said to him, well, what else do you do between 6am and 9am in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> right, And that's,
1: I mean, like for some people, it will be, you just get up early and do it then. And for others, it will be you work late and, and do it then. To me, I can't, I don't even know who the fuck I am at six o'clock in the morning. There's no way I can write anything of any use at that moment. <laughs> so it, it has to be later on. It has to be later on. And you know, you can give yourself a glass of wine in the room. In fact, wine, I think is quite helpful for the editing process. <laughs> So, you know, there there is a way around it and you can make your life fit around it. But the truth is, there's no two ways around it, right? Like, I mean, I used to hate that pompous bourgeois crap about, oh, writing a book, it's like giving birth and it's just such a terrible experience. And you just think you're clean, you know, you're not having to do backbreaking work in the street, you you know, you're not, you, you just stop complaining and and then I wrote a book and I thought, oh no, it is, it is dreadful. Like it is a re- you will, you will tear your heart out and put it on a page. It is such, such hard work, very, very lonely and blah, Everything that people say about writing a book is absolutely true. And anyone that has written a book does deserve a certain amount of respect to just being like, yeah, that was really difficult and, and you managed to do it. So it is bourgeois, pompous nonsense. But un- unfortunately, in this case, it is also true.
0: The expression I've heard is uh, not many people enjoy writing the book, but an awful lot of people, like the fact they've written one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I yeah that that must be true. I suppose that is true. It is. I mean, look, it, having written one is a damn sight better than writing it. I I can definitely confirm that.
0: <laughs> so now it's out there. Have you got any plans to write any other books, or is that is that it for the moment?
1: Uh, eventually, I will. But I, I need a year. I need a year mm-hmm. off, mostly because I do actually want my my weekends and my evenings. I'm actually quite lazy. Like I really do like just sitting around and drinking wine and playing on a playstation reading comics that sounds great to me like i really enjoy that and i want to do much more of that the second part is the journalism does suffer a bit not least because you're you know, I would be sitting in these sort of debates in the commons, and I'd constantly just be thinking about John Stuart Mill or something. And oh, how does that make that bit work? The book becomes this permanent background narrative in your head, it essentially replaces your subconscious. (laughs) It's just the place that your brain goes to, when it's not being engaged with something actively right in front of you. And that takes away from your focus on what the next journalism, what the next piece is going to be. And that at the moment matters a lot. Like I'm quite keen to get back to journalism sort of full-time all the time and trying to hold the governmental account. So it will be a year before I think I consider doing another one. I know it's going to happen. I know it's inevitable that I will do another one. I do just want a bit more time <laughs> before I allow something like that to take over my life again. I
0: think that's allowed. Excellent. Thank well, Ian, you. it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. The time's flown. Really, I, I was going to say, best of luck with your book. Your book's been out for a while; and it's been selling well anyway, it will continue to do so. Um, I think it's fabulous, and I really uh, appreciate you putting pen to paper for it. So, thanks very much for coming on.
1: Not at all. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.